Uh, good morning. My name's Brad. Hi, guys. And uh, this morning, I'm going to talk about justice, or uh, specifically social justice, or uh, maybe better, just because I like to change what words mean, uh, I like to, do, to talk about systemic injustice and the work of, of making justice, or keeping justice, and uh, making mercy. Uh, loving both of those things at the same time. Essentially, how do we uh, deal with a broken society? Uh, that's what we mean when we say uh, social injustice, that, that the society we live in is broken uh, systemically. Uh, and everyone acknowledges this part of the, the true story of God, right? That, that the world uh, and relationships with people, uh, the systems of government... Uh, all of it is broken. Uh, everyone acknowledges that. You know because uh, people subscribe to philosophies on how to make the world right, whether it's uh, communism or capitalism or tribalism, whatever it might be. Like Those are the systems we put in place to correct the, the injustice in the world. What do we do uh, with the world that's broken? Or as Ernest Hemingway writes, uh, the world breaks everyone, uh, even the strongest. Even in the hardest of places, the world breaks everyone. So what do we make of a broken world and how do we fix it? This isn't so much a uh, controversial topic. And I think, yeah, the, the point of the series is not just to have controversial topics. Like next week, Jared's going to preach on art and goodness. And there's no one really out there saying, art's terrible. Down with art. Uh, but this isn't so much a controversy between us uh, the church and the world as much as it is really a very contentious debate within the church. Most of our culture, most of our city at least kind of agrees on paper, uh, at least agrees in the, the ballot box, in, in plurality, uh, what we should do to make the world better. Uh, there's not that much of a robust debate even internally in our city. I mean, we can always zoom out bigger and find debate. But within the church, of, of the Christian church, this is a very contentious debate. Uh, I know for firsthand, a few weeks ago, uh, at the end of February, I, I have a podcast. I try not to talk about it all the time. But uh, we did an episode on social justice and the gospel. And I know that this is a contentious topic because I got emails from one person saying, how could you destroy the gospel like that and talk about social justice that way? And I also got other emails that said, how could you talk about the gospel that way? Like, do you see, like people were mad at me just because we talked about it. It's a, it's a very contentious debate. They listened to the same episode and were both, both people were mad at me. And I think that that sort of contentiousness about a debate with social justice kind of reveals uh, probably like a bigger problem that happens throughout all these topics we've done in this series. Uh, most of the way that we deal with the Bible, I would say, is we come to it with our own preferences and desires and perspectives, and then we try to find, and you can do this, Find as many verses to back up what you already believe as you want. You can, if there's parts of the Bible that uh, you don't like, you can just cut those bits out entirely. 
We can pick and choose. And usually what we do is we create these sort of binary decisions. Like you're either for the poor or for, you're for like the gospel. You're either for uh, taking care of people or uh, you are for the evangelization of everyone all the time as the only means of doing God's mission. We're to do justice, people yell. Then other people yell, no, we're to do evangelism. There are people that say, there are oppressed people out there. Then other people yell, no, there's just sinners who've made bad decisions. But the, the beauty and, and the mystery of God and the otherness of God's glory is actually found in the tension of a story. And whenever we say like the gospel is a grand narrative, we're talking about that reality of tension, not binary lists that we get to say, I like this list of passages more than I like this list of passages. This list of passages is all about how Jesus loves us. These passages are all about how Jesus judges us. I'm just going to choose a passage. No, the, the glory and the very otherness of God is found in the tension of a story that says yes to both of those. Uh, for example, just to think back in the series, the Bible says that there's a holy, pure sexual ethic of men and women giving themselves to each other exclusively sexually for their own pleasure, delight, and the worship of God. The Bible says that anything that isn't that is sin. But the Bible also says at the same time that, that even if people sin and they sin incredibly zealously, God loves them and they're the image of of God. So it's not this plurality of like, oh, well, you're either a good person that has sex the right way, or you're a terrible person that should be hated, right? Or it doesn't also say, oh, we should just love everyone, and it doesn't matter what we do. Do you see the, the glorious tension there? Or maybe it's not so glorious. The Bible also speaks to how we're sinners, where pervasively every part of our lives is touched by desire to do evil, to enact evil, and every part of our lives has been touched by evil and sin and death and brokenness. And yet, the Bible also says that every human being was fearfully and wonderfully created with a purpose and to be intimately known by God to the, to the reaches of which God will die himself so that he can know you and be known by you. That both things of those are true is only found in a story. And so I think the, the contentiousness of a debate about social justice uh, is really about that, I would say. Because if, if the whole scripture uh, doesn't point to a neat and tidy political philosophy, it might just point to a completely other one. A completely other one that's held up by a God who forms the universe and considers every human not just a speck of dust, but a soul to cherish and a person to save. And that's what the whole of Scripture points to. Uh, and just a, yeah, I'm, I'm way off topic, I know. But if you decide just to pick and choose, and I know that that's like super popular. It's popular with, with everyone, uh, I, you know, I grew up in a place where people were like, yeah, well, Jesus, all those passages about sheep and goats and like caring for the poor, like, that was because he was poor. But we're not. We're middle-class urban Americans. Like, we're fine. 
that's real. Like, that's what real people say. Uh, but then there's the other really popular way to go, which is to say, I don't really like Paul. He's like a misogynistic jerk. So I don't have to read any of Paul's writings because uh, I don't like him. And by the way, he never actually, he wasn't one of the 12 disciples. He didn't really know Jesus. Therefore, we can just cut him out. Except there's a whole book about how you can't do that. It's the book of Galatians. And we might just say, well, let's just look at Jesus only. Right? Like, just the Gospels. Let's just look at that. Because his disciples were power hungry. Has anyone heard these things before? Believe these things? Yeah. Except that how do we get the Gospels? Just so you can like, know the, the dead end of this logic. The Gospels are actually formed and created by people who were his disciples, who followed Jesus, right? Uh, the Gospel of Luke, which is most people's favorite Gospel. Uh, it's the one that upholds the value of women like no other ancient text. Like, the, what the Gospel of Luke does with women and the poor and the vulnerable and the oppressed and how he turns it all upside down and he weaves it all together to this glorious picture of like women as the main testaments, the first proclaimers of the risen Lord, is written by Luke, who is Paul's best friend, who spends his whole life under the Apostle Paul's teaching. Just a random tidbit to throw out Paul is to throw out the Gospel of Luke itself. It's incredibly problematic. And not only will you risk, if you do this, the beauty of the Scriptures, uh, not only will you miss out on the struggle to understand a God who's other, uh, not only will you be creating your own religion that is not Christianity, you will also have no way of knowing the living God who created the universe and who loves you. Because you will be making the whole of Scripture about yourself. What you will find is not an image of God, but an image of you. Instead of finding the the story of the living God who sovereignly, even now, is creating new galaxies. Mind-blowing. Instead of finding a story of that God, you will find your own story rubbing up against a few hand-picked ancient texts. You will create your own religion. The tension of the story of God, the story of God's redemptive plan and what he desires for humans and who we're called to be, uh, it's not just true, it's, at least for me, a nice warm blanket in a sea of chaos. And social justice is, uh, yeah, as I was supposed to talk about, uh, is that kind of topic. That the world is broken, how do we put it back together, and people just want to choose a few different sides, a few different angles, and say, that's how we put the world back together. But the Bible, uh, especially with this topic, it's not so much picking and choosing passages, but picking and choosing parts of passages, uh, Micah 6.8 is one of the, the cornerstone passages about this, and it says uh, this. It says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly 
with your God. Perhaps a, a better translation of the words might be to make justice and to enjoy the receiving and the giving of mercy. And to walk humbly with God. All of this, to me at least, uh, if I could get a tattoo, like if I could ever just like make myself spend that kind of money, uh, that's what it always comes down to in the end. It's like, I could get a tattoo, or I could get a pair of shoes, uh, I could get a tattoo, or I could go on vacation, and then I, I, always, I just don't get a tattoo. But if I could, like if I could get myself like to do it, or maybe I'll go to a foreign country somewhere and it'll only be like $10, and uh, I'll just go for it. Um, or if anyone here knows how to make their own tattoo, you can. <laughs> if you know how to do it, let me know. Um, uh, it's like there's that new commercial. It's like, I'm a, I'm a tattoo artist in this city. Yeah. Uh, that's what I'm looking for is just a cheap one. But if I could, this would be, this passage would be like, for me, the passage that I would have tattooed on my body. Because I think it's just so beautiful, so wonderful, and it opens us up to this mystery of like, what is the goal of justice and mercy? Because what Micah is writing here is that this is the whole purpose of a, of a human. Like, that's why I would tattoo it on my arm. Because it's like, this is, I was made to make justice and to love mercy. I was made to walk humbly with God. And it's all of those woven together in some mysterious way of me as a mortal going to make justice and enjoy mercy. How are we supposed to do that? What is the goal? Uh, There are two really good uh, passages in the life of Jesus that I want to look at uh, that describe that. Uh, The first is Luke chapter 4. This is the very beginning of the Gospel. Jesus... uh, has just, you know, grown up, become a man. He's like 30-ish years old, uh, around the the median age of this congregation. And he comes into Nazareth, which is the city that he was born in, and this is what he does within the synagogue. And in Luke 4, verse 16, it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll... And gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And everyone around was was amazed and stunned. Here Jesus describes... In the very first sermon or teaching he will ever give, he stands up, he rolls the scroll out, and he reads this. That the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. 
that Yahweh, the God of the universe, the God of the people of Israel, is upon him. He's there to do something. It's like his announcement of what his whole purpose is. What's amazing is it's like this text was written like so long before, and yet he comes, he unrolls it, and he reads it, and he says, I came to proclaim good news. Good news. He came to to proclaim the gospel, to to be a a presenter, to be a preacher of, of the greatest good news. In the first chapter of Mark, he says, Uh, that he comes to proclaim the gospel, and what he says is the kingdom of God is at hand, the time was fulfilled, repent and believe. That's the the good news, that that Jesus is preaching all the time. The good news that, that he has come into the world in all of its sin, darkness, pain, frustration, but he is the anointed one, the Messiah, the King, the Christ, who's here to restore all things. He's here to come and make a kingdom. A kingdom that's not based on military might and rules and all those things. A kingdom that's just based on his own death, his own life, his own sacrifice, his own resurrection. That's good news, right? Good news for you is the time's up. You don't have to keep working anymore, striving anymore to make yourself good, to make yourself right. That's all complete. The time is now. The kingdom of God, God's rule and his reign where he gets exactly what he wants out of every human being That time is now, and the way he does that is through his own death and resurrection. That's the good news, right? It's good, right? Ish? Amen. Amen. Okay. It's okay to say that. We don't, yeah. uh. But then he, there's this modifier there. He came to preach that news to who? Who? The poor. That his whole purpose, like his incarnation, he came to preach that news to the poor. Who are the poor? The Bible, uh, especially the Old Testament, has a lot to speak on this category of the poor. There are actually three uh, great factors or components to what makes a person poor. Uh, The first is systemic injustice and oppression. In fact, many of the the times uh, when the poor are talked about in the Old Testament, it's this Hebrew word that just means wrongfully oppressed. It refers to the unjust social condition and treatment that keeps people and keeps a person in poverty. There's plenty of examples throughout the Bible where whole social systems are weighed in favor of the already powerful, the already rich, There's examples of high-interest loans that are designed and created to keep people in slavery and bondage and below them. Throughout the New Testament, there's often talk about unjust wages given to people who are working really hard. One of the main factors of poverty that the Bible describes is the systemic injustice where the powerful oppress others to remain powerful. Another factor in poverty described in the Old Testament is circumstantial calamity. That's a phrase that I stole from Tim Keller. That's why it's so filled with (laughs) syllables. But essentially what he's talking about 
And what the Old Testament talks about is that there's all these natural disasters and circumstances and illnesses and disease that keep people in poverty. And the the Bible is filled with that examples like famine or disabilities or sicknesses or floods or fires that just keep people in poverty. And then the last one is personal failure and choices. The book of Proverbs has quite a zinger on laziness that, that produces poverty. Or a lack of work, a lack of self-discipline, a lack of, of, of actually pursuing uh, solutions to your own problems leaves people in poverty. And this is where the, the tension of the scriptures is hard, right? I think the, the first two are exciting for us in our own, like, probably philosophical minds. For others of us, the last one's really easy. Like, of course, like, these people are poor because they've made bad choices. Others, it's like, no, it can't be that. What's beautiful about the scriptures is that it combines all three of these into this complexity of reality. That, yeah, there are systems and the powerful oppress others. And then, yes, people make terrible decisions in that place of oppression, and there is zero margin for any sort of earthquake or storm or health crisis, and then you are trapped in poverty for the rest of your life. Like that is what the scriptures describe. And Jesus says, I came to preach the gospel to the poor. But he also goes on, He says, He, Yahweh, sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, this year, this time, where all is made good and right, where he will be the Prince of Peace. See, Jesus doesn't just say, I came to preach good news. He also says, I came with that with my very words, people would be set free. He came to, to not just speak good news to the poor, but to, to radically change the world and the life that people have. What I love about Jesus is he just read it, and then he sat down, and then everyone was staring at him, and then he was like, what's up? Not really. <laughs> He's just simply said, today what I just read has been fulfilled in your own hearing. Uh, Nazareth was a poor town. The people in the synagogue were poor. Poor on any measurement. There might have been a few people that were of higher status than the others, but in the whole scheme of the world, even of their own tiny province of Palestine, the people of Nazareth were poor. What's wonderful is that you can get a group of 10, 12, 20, 100 people together, and you can create an economic uh, hierarchy. It's pretty great. Like, there are people in this church that are, they're just like the richest. It's amazing. But they're not like that rich. If you widen the scope, you know, if you go to a Laker game and you're sitting there, you're like, oh, there's some real rich people here. Because I know how much those tickets cost. And I'm way up here. 
But Jesus goes and he preaches to these people who are on just the very fact of it poor, and he says, in your hearing it, this passage of Isaiah has been fulfilled and it's complete. The good news was preached to you, and the, the message of liberty to captives and the oppressed, that's real. That's happened. See, in the Bible, and especially in Jesus' view, uh, justice is a complete flourishing. Uh, Cornelius Plantinga, I've quoted him before, he describes the justice being made as shalom. He says this, In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder at its creator and savior, and it opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom delights, whom he delights. Such a great quote. So much more than probably we imagine justice. Not just people's needs being met in some superficial way, but that each person and all of their giftings would be employed to this satisfying nature. That people would be awakened to this wonder and the God who created it all, who would be this thriving human. I think our cultural view of justice is, is less than that. Maybe it's just uh, Equality. It defines justice in terms of uh, people having equal amounts of revenue or equal amounts of education or equal amounts of awards. So I, the award season is always like amazing to me, and I know I'm a terrible person to speak on this topic. Uh, but the awards, it's always, there's always this trapping of which, like, oh, well, if these people win an award, then we have achieved justice in the world. Or positions or status. And I think that's an agreed upon view of justice. If everyone could just get equal, the same, people could have access to awards and revenue and income, like that would be a good world. The, the debates are usually around how to get there. Some people say it's one through. Uh, through marching and, and raising awareness. You know, I remember vividly when Al Gore won a Nobel Peace Prize for making a documentary about a problem that still exists. There's other people that say justice is about having lots of money and power and prestige. The way to get it, though, is just pulling yourself up. Working really hard, making good decisions, standing up for yourself, doing what you have to do to get there. We should just make it to where everyone has the equal like, ability to pull themselves up. But what Jesus says is that is just far less than what he intends to do. 
That it's far less of of Jesus' view of justice than to see people having income or money or resources. He's talking about every single person, not just having what they need, but thriving and flourishing like a garden that's overflowing with vegetation, where every single person gets to use their God-given abilities and talents and that they would thrive in them. And all of it would produce this wonder in who God is and who they are as a person. That's justice in the Bible. The other passage I want to look at is Luke 10. Luke 10, 25, uh, Jesus is arguing with a lawyer. uh, Might be better just like a person who knows like the rules and laws, not like an actual like a lawyer, how we think of them, uh, good or bad, but more of just a person who knows all the laws. And this is what it says. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the, the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly, do this, and you will live. Just a quick pause here. Yet again, there's this like juxtaposition of like the gospel, walking humbly with God, justice. Here it's loving God with your whole self and loving your neighbor. Like interwoven and connected. But then the lawyer, this is verse 29, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Such a great answer. Who's my neighbor? A man was walking. It's like a joke, but it's real. It's a parable. He says, and he fell among robbers who who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road. And when he saw him, he passed by the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by the other way. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound him, bounded up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Then Jesus turns to him and says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And then the man said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Mercy. This is one of the most captivating stories in the Bible. The imagination of Jesus is, you know, I mean, I guess he created the cosmos, so it's telling good stories is like a a small trick, but it's, it's amazing. He tells a story of this guy who is walking this road the valley of the shadow of death between these two 
towns where uh, to go that way is to know that you're probably going to be at risk and danger. So maybe he made a bad decision. Why is he alone? Like, doesn't he have community and family and people to go with him? Maybe he was going to do injustice to the people of Jericho. This is walking this way. Uh, as it happens, he does get robbed and beaten and left on the side of the road, dead and, or half dead and mangled and bruised. And then a priest comes by, right? The priest walks by, and it says he saw him. And he he moved to the other side. And then a Levite comes by. I think it's just for the sake of repetition, uh, to distinguish a priest from a Levite is really uh, not very consequential, other than like these two people, a priest and a Levite, are supposed to be the kind of people that stand between God and humans and make a way for them to be together. Between the broken and the dying and the very living true God, a priest is supposed to stand there. A Levite is is born into this heritage, this DNA of being a person like that. And they both see this man, say, he's unclean. Like, he's so messy and so dirty. They might have even done some calculations in their head. I could probably give them a bunch of resources, but what's it going to do? You know, this guy's probably already half dead. I've, I've done the triage in my head, and there's, nothing's going to happen. So maybe the, the wise stewardship decision is to continue on because I have places to go that will bring about more benefit. Right? But then the Samaritan comes. Samaritan sees him and has compassion. He went to him and he bounded up his wounds. He sees him and then he touches him. He gets messy. He gets bloody himself. He ties up his wounds. I think that at the end of that story, like if it was me and there was someone on the side of the road, you know, like classic example, uh, in fact, uh, when we drove down here, we were going through the Redwood Forest, and there was this lady, like, waving people down on the side, and there's like, no one out there. Uh, and my kids were watching, so I pulled over for this lady. <laughs> and uh, she was really upset. Uh, and then she just sort of ran into the woods and asked me to follow her, and I did because, I don't know, she was kind of an old lady. I didn't think she was going to jump me in the woods, uh, of indoor. Uh, so I ran, uh, after her, uh, and I found out that there was just this, uh, she had a dog that she had let off the leash in this huge national park with these massive trees, and the, and the dog had jumped down this little cliff of sand, and she couldn't get down there, so I just had to climb down and, like, get the dog up, this little tiny, I don't know, 20-pound dog. And so I did that, masterfully, uh, <laughs> Uh, and then I got the dog up to her, and she was like, yay, and she ran away. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll just climb myself out of this pit myself. Uh, and so I did that, and uh, walked back to the van and where they are, and uh, she's telling the children, like, how awesome uh, I am. Like, your dad is a hero. 
And I keep bringing that up. Like, you see these billboards? They're not heroes. Who's a real hero? Your dad. Remember that time I saved that dog named Lucky? That was me. I'm the real hero. But I think, like, and then it was like, how can we as quick as possible get on with our day? Like, I don't want to become friends with this lady. She's talking about all of her things and her problems and, like, relational dynamics of children and stuff in San Francisco. And it's like, that's neat. (laughs) Drove away. We have better trees to see. I think... Honestly, the, bi- the bounding up and the caring for his wounds would be enough. Yet the Samaritan then gives him his own animal and then brings him to an inn, pays for his stay, and then tells the innkeeper, take care of him, and when I get back, you just tell me what I owe you, and I'll pay for it. Like, whatever, whatever it is. He, like, basically writes this guy a blank check. No, like, whatever it costs at the end, I'm, gonna, I'm on the hook for it. He doesn't, like, itemize it. You know, it's not like a health insurance broker. Like, well, we'll cover 25% of this, and I'll cover 80% of that. He just says, whatever it is, you know, you can take advantage of me. When I get back, I'll pay you whatever you say. I need to pay you back. And in this, the Samaritan becomes a neighbor. And Jesus holds this up as the story of compassion and mercy. So when Micah says, the purpose of a man, of a mortal, is to do justice and love mercy, he's talking about the first story and this story. The Gospel of Matthew gives one final peek, and we don't have to turn there. Uh, but Jesus himself identifies as the poor. I don't know if there's a great story about sheep and goats, and then in the end, uh, he says, every time you care for the hungry or the naked or the sick or the uh, imprisoned, every time you visit and you care for one of them, you've cared for me. In the end, there's this odd reversal where Jesus says, I, I am the poor. And it's true. You know, on the day of his circumcision, his parents offer him what is the poorest thing you could offer in the temple. He tells people all the time, not as a metaphor, but just as a reality. He says, like, the foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but I don't have anywhere to sleep. Jesus in the end says, I am the poor. I am the vulnerable. And then Micah 6a, it says, walk, you know, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. There's this mysterious reality about that. But then again, I think this Good Samaritan story is a story about himself. I think Jesus is clever that way. The story about a guy who goes beyond, like, the Samaritan's completely unrelated to this Jewish person. And he comes in, and he sees, and he has compassion. Jesus comes into the world. While we've been walking through the valley of the shadow of death, Jesus comes and says, I see you. I see that you're dead. I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to touch you, and I'm going to bind up all of your wounds. 
all of the mess that you've gotten yourself in and all the mess that has come upon you, I will bound that up. Also, I will carry you on my own strength, my own ability. I will carry you to the place that is safe. And then I will pay all of your debts. All future incursions of injustice I will pay. I will holistically see you and nurture you and care for you all on my own merit, not your own. Jesus stands in a way that the Levite and the priest failed to do. Jesus says, yes, I will make a way between you and God. And I will do it all on my own back. I'm coming to you proclaiming good news to the poor. See, the greatest expression of any justice in the world is in the cross. God taking justice upon himself, making all things right. It's the only way towards justice. He's, he's making a way towards a vital, a vibrant city in the ages to come where every single person is exactly uh, right with God and with one another and has everything they need. See, the true story of the gospel empowers us to acknowledge pain. It empowers us to, to see, to hear, to know, to touch The true story challenges us, even calls us to be people who live differently in, this, in a system that is broken. Calls us to a completely different set of laws. The true story and, and belief in the gospel, it means a lot of things, but it doesn't mean less than care for the poor. It's a crucial sign that we even understand what Jesus did for us. A lot of people, they, they read Luke 4, the first passage I read, and they said, well, that doesn't make sense. Jesus didn't come for me? Because I'm not poor? No, to identify and to come to belief in the gospel is to understand yourself as drastically poor. Jonathan Edwards, uh, he wrote Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God. You might have read in school. He also wrote a lot on... Uh, care for the poor. He described it as rules of the gospel. That because the gospel is true, we now have this whole different way of life because we're patterning ourselves after the gospel. If, if Jesus died for us when we were undeserving and gave us life, then we, just based on the patterns, the rules of the gospel, would lay our lives down for the sake of others. He believed that the most important motivation for giving and caring for the poor was a belief in the gospel. He said, giving to the poor is especially, especially reasonable considering our circumstances. Under such a disposition of grace that is the gospel. Considering our circumstances and that God would be mindful and considerate and giving of himself for us we ought to be unreasonably generous as well. Uh, theologian uh, Leslie Newbigin wrote this. He said, The gospel isn't just the illustration of an idea. I think a lot of people like the concepts that I've just said. He says, The gospel isn't just an illustration of idea. It's the story of actions by which the human situation is irreversibly changed. 
In a few weeks when we celebrate Easter, we're celebrating the fact that there were actions and activities that happened that irreversibly changes the human condition of all. I think it, it might be unfair to not say what we should do, though I'm tempted just to put it on a blog somewhere. Uh, but there are, th- there are three things that I think we should do in light of the gospel, in light of the, the, the Bible and the story's definition of both justice and mercy and walking humbly with God. The first is that justice-making and mercy-giving has to look like giving people relief. Like the Good Samaritan, like feeding people, clothing them, giving them a meal, giving them uh, their next step. Just the relief of, here is a shirt, because you don't have one. As, as Jonathan Edwards was writing about, just being motivated to give, even if the people are undeserving and you don't know what they're going to do with it. Like, in my mind, when I saved Lucky the dog, I thought, she is going to lose this dog again. Maybe it would be merciful to let the dog roam around in this incredible forest. But it's to give of ourselves, to give relief. That is, in part, what it means to do justice and love mercy. It also must mean uh, giving and developing the people in the world around us. The scriptures tell us to cultivate the earth, to subdue it, uh, to seek the welfare of the city that we're in. Uh, Jesus is always telling people to go fishing, make tents, do all of these things. Essentially doing the work that's needed to see someone have the opportunity to become a member of a community in which all of their God-given abilities are able to be extended to the world around them. In the Old Testament, when a slave's debt was repaid, uh, slavery in the Old Testament was all a, a debt financial mortgage thing. It applies to today. I have a mortgage. It's the same. Uh, but when it was finally forgiven, the person who owned that debt was directed by God to send him out with grain and tools and resources and everything that they would need to create a life for themselves. To, to pour into uh, a person's education, uh, to create businesses, to train others, uh, to seek a, a neighborhood where we're reinvesting in the people that the neighborhood is you know, creating through childbirth. It means that the church should be developing ways for others to own homes and own property, that they would have uh, investments in uh, being able to build a business, to hire people, that kind of work. Like that is the kingdom work. Developing. Then also, and lastly, justice making and mercy giving must also mean seeking reform. Social reform that, that moves beyond just immediate relief that moves beyond uh, even just developing people so that they can you know, go to college or get into jobs that they might need. It's actually seeking to change the social conditions that create and keep people in poverty. Uh, there's this really great part uh, in the story of Job that a lot of people miss because it's in Job chapter 29, so it's not the cool parts. Uh, but it's when Job is like telling God, like, I'm a righteous person. He says this, I broke the fangs of the wicked and made them drop their victims. 
I'm a righteous person. I went after the very fangs of the wicked so that they would drop their victims. The prophets repeatedly denounced unfair wages, corrupt business practices, legal systems that were heavily in favor of the rich and the influential. The the prophets and Moses were all about talking against people that put others under unacceptable loans and mortgages and interest rates. One of my favorites is Daniel uh, calls out pagan kings and governments to change their practices. He calls on the most powerful person who does not share his religion at all, and he says, you need to change what you're doing around here. All for the sake of mercy to the poor. I think this means that as Christians, we should work, in particular for our own community, for our own city, to get better police protection, better laws, better enforcement, better banking practices. We should be all about... uh, seeking the welfare of our city, even just through our own voice. Some of us through writing laws and enforcing laws and doing the work of a, of a lawyer today of seeing that the laws are carried out graciously and mercifully. Why? Because as Jonathan Edwards said, we've been gifted with such a dispensation of grace. Because the gospel is not just a great idea, the gospel is a, is a remaking of the world. Because as we seek to do these things, we get to see little tangible pieces of the kingdom that is to come. Uh, the, the scriptures end with this holy, massive city coming down onto a new earth, and there's a new heavens, a new cosmos, and all of the people in it see God and know God and walk with God humbly for the rest of their lives, worshiping Him, that's humility, and get to declare daily with all of their practices, the one who died on the tree is the healing of all nations. The story ends with that kind of restoration. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray for that uh, eternal bliss today, that forever city that is just and right and good. God, I pray for us to be uh, bold as Jesus was to proclaim the gospel to the poor. To give relief to the poor. To uh, care for one another in this, own, in this body. I pray for us to be Uh, in all of our capacities, able to uh, develop and care for one another. To be members of this community, this city, uh, that seeks the best of it, not just what we can get from it. I pray that we would uh, be able to see and have compassion. Transform our hearts to be people who are wise and hardworking and compassionate and seekers of justice. God, even as we come and take communion, I pray that we would uh, be able to humbly approach you as the one who, who gave us everything. It's your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.